Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... The zip purpose, the freedom to, to own it, talks to you know giving customers the freedom to own the experience, own the dress, own their financial well-being, but we also own the responsibilities that come with issuing microcredit in real time. Larry Diamond pitched his fintech idea for a new type of payment method to would-be investors just as the online payment space was ripe for disruption. Potential backers said, hey, great idea, Larry, but you have no clue about consumer credit. So rather than drop the idea, Larry Diamond looked for a consumer credit expert. He clicked with more experienced Peter Gray, tossing around plans and business models over beers in North Sydney's Commodore pub. The pair co-founded what started as Zip Money and became Zip Co the buy now, pay later product that came to disrupt traditional point of sale payments such as credit cards, or as Diamond calls them, the dinosaurs. When Zipco began in mid-2013, remember, there was still no afterpay on the Australian scene. Yes, PayPal was the dominant global player, that had previously disrupted online payments, but even it was not in the buy now, pay later space in 2013. From a completely standing start, Larry Diamond and Peter Gray gradually built Zip into an empire that now employs 750 staff globally. They claim 7 million customers worldwide, including more than 2.5 million customers in Australia with some 50,000 merchants signed up. And the pair say that's just the start of their global growth plans. Afterpay is now a very strong competitor and has grown bigger. Indeed, all the buy now, pay later stocks were the market darlings of last year, with Zips shares up several hundred percent in 2020. And that put Larry Diamond on the AFR Young Rich list at number 14 with an estimated wealth of $440 million. Despite that, the founders say they faced constant struggles along their journey. Hope you enjoy part one of my chat with Larry Diamond on how he built Zip into a genuine Aussie success story. Welcome, Larry Diamond, and thank you for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thanks for having me, Helen. Great to be here today. Oh, well, look, it's great to talk to you as co-founder of Zipco. I mean, it's a completely homegrown fintech Australian company that offers the buy now, pay later products to consumers online and in-store. It's become so successful in, what, just the past seven or eight years. Even though you are up against market leader in this country, Afterpay and, and Klarna is the big Swedish giant multinationally. Give us a picture now of what Zipco is right now. How big revenue, how many merchants and customers you have? Yeah, sure. So uh, we do like healthy competition, but in uh, eight years, and in fact, today is our eighth birthday, we actually incorporated 
today on the 24th of June, eight, eight years ago, which is uh, interesting timing for today. Oh, happy anniversary. That's great timing. Great timing. As we say, even though we are eight years in, it definitely feels like we are only getting started. In, in terms of scale, you know, we, we went from 2013 to today, blank canvas of zero to now we have uh, about 750 staff globally and, and we're Zips accepted in over over 10 countries. We're run rating, you know, well over $400 million a year in uh, revenue and our customers are, are, are climbing through the ranks well north of 7 million customers now globally. And on the merchant side, we've got about 50,000 and again, growing month over month. And because we're adding a lot of countries and, and new regions, the, the, the number changes every day. It's amazing to have seen the growth from zero uh, all the way to, to this size, but uh, you know, good size business. In, in Australia, we have between two and a half and three million customers. So pretty good size, but a long way to go. You have ZipPay, Zip Money, which is more like a credit card charging some interest and Zip business. These are the products, right? Correct. Yeah, that's exactly right. We started with Zip Money eight years ago, which was really disrupting the consumer finance world of, uh, with an interest-free, fairer and digital alternative. Zip Pay came on the scene, which is really a, a cut-down version, which is the Buy Now, Pay Later wallet about three or four years ago. And then just in the last six months, we've launched Zip Business, which is all about providing interest-free solutions and working capital solutions to uh, three million Australian small businesses. Okay, so let's start with probably the most popular is ZipPay, isn't it? How does it actually work for consumers? Yeah, sure. So when we looked at the world of credit cards and we were innovating around the product and the customer experience, there were many things we looked at with the credit card that we saw as fundamentally broken. So this idea that the balance is paid back in years, not weeks and months, the fact that it's it's interest-bearing, and the fact that it's physical, it's, it's a physical clunky, clunky card. And so we saw an opportunity with ZipPay to really create a fairer and better digital alternative that was interest-free. So we removed the concept of interest entirely in the ZipPay product. We also made sure that the balance was repaid really, really quickly. And so that's really why millennials and Gen Zs in particular gravitating towards these products. So you sign up, let's say you get a thousand dollar account that we, that, that we approve you for. You can sign up on your mobile phone in a few minutes and get a, a an instant decision. And we give you an account limit up to up to a thousand dollars. You can make purchases during the month. You can shop at Amazon now, where, where we're integrated. Um, you can shop at JB Hi-Fi, and all these items are effectively added to your account during the month, almost you know, added to the tab, as they say. And then on the beginning of the next month, we'll send you a statement with everything that you purchased in that month, and you can pay it back within that thirty-day period, and, and it's completely free. Or we have a flat six-dollar a month monthly account fee. So incredibly flexible. We also have a, a minimum repayment amount. So you can pay the balance off in full, in which case it's, it's fee-free, or we encourage you to pay a minimum of $40 or $80. Okay. So the balance has to be paid over what period? You said in a much shorter time, obviously, than the traditional credit cards. Is it the sort of four installments over two months or something like that? Yes. Our product's actually quite different here in Australia. So think about us a credit card without the interest. So we don't split in four. Our view as well is all about empowerment. And, you know, customers out there in Australia, some are paid weekly, some are paid fortnightly, some are paid monthly. And and really our view is it's really up to you how and when you want to pay back. So rather than splitting it in four or splitting in six or splitting in eight, you get to choose. So you make purchases during the month where, where no money has really come out of your account. And then at the beginning of the following month, so if you imagine we're in the month of June, I've made purchases during this month and I've got a balance at the end of June. First of July, we'll tell our Zip customers 
here's what you've spent, and you have until the end of that month to uh, make your payment. If you pay back in full, we waive the $6 a month fee, or you pay a minimum of $40. So you, you have that wonderful flexibility. Okay. So in effect, if you pay the balance off in full, it is a two-month free credit card. Correct. Yeah. If you decide to pay, this is the fee you charge, the $6 one, if you go over that next month, that second month, if you like, you do have to pay that fee. If you pay that minimum amount, how much do the fees add up? Yeah, so if, if for example, I mean, ZipPay goes up to about $1,500. So, um, you know, if you, if you made a couple of purchases and you had a thousand dollars, let's say, um, at the end of, at the end of the month and you pay, you know, some customers pay back 40, some pay back 400, some pay back the full amount. Well, we, we charge a $6 monthly account fee. And by the way, you know, customers are very happy to pay for value. Our view is that, uh, it needs to be fair, transparent, and easy to understand. And so customers really see it as a, as a subscription service. You know, you pay the $6 and you get this wonderful, wonderful flexibility. Of course, you know, the average balance is really repaid within two to four months. So it, it really comes back quite, quite quickly. Yeah. Okay. So I just want to get this straight in my own head. Yeah. If you pay, say, the $40 minimum, you've borrowed the $1,000. That's going to take you several months to pay off if you're only paying $40 a month. So that would attract $6 each month. That would add Correct. up, yeah? Sure, absolutely. But, you know, it's fair in value. Uh, we're, we're, we're making you pay the balance back in, in, in months, not not years. Yeah, yeah. And there's no you know, high revolving balance that's incurring interest. And, uh, and that's why the customers of, of today and tomorrow are choosing these, these products and services. Right. Now, is there a dishonour fee too if the payment doesn't go through? Like the bank charges a dishonour fee if you muck up your payment or don't have enough money in your yes. account? Yeah, absolutely. I just want to, if I can rewind for, for a second, you know, the beauty about our model is we make about 1% of our revenue from late fees. So about one in 100 of our customers are late in, in any given month. And a big reason for this is some of the other constructs, obviously, that have this certain repayment process, we, we have incredible flexibility. So circumstances change, you might make a, a larger purchase this month, you need a couple of extra months to, to sort of pay it off. And so that's a really important factor in, in this product construct. In terms of late fees, as we spoke about earlier, so if, for example, we've made all those purchases in the month of June and we send a statement in July, now the first payment is technically due at the end of July, right? And so it could be after 60 days. Let's assume you haven't set weekly or fortnightly payments during that period. When we look to pull the funds out, at the end of July, if there's a bounce, then we'll try again and effectively we'll give you another 21 days to make whole on that payment. If you still are unable to, we charge a $5 late fee. And so as okay. you can see, it's a big reason why, you know, our, our late fee revenue is really only 1% of the revenue pie. Yeah. So that's what I'm calling the dishonor fee. You, you, yeah. you say it's a late fee. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's the only, uh, I, I guess it's a kind of a hidden charge, but it's not really hidden. You're very open about it. Absolutely. You know, it's very important that customers uh, understand the fee regime. They know what they're signing up for. And so we are very clear about that. We also, you know, often you might have money in this account and not that account or you've, or you've switched over a debit card. So it's important to have that flexibility when we are managing our, our debtors. The other thing is because we sit at the intersection of retail and credit, you know, a lot of our retail customers are also, their customers are our customers. And therefore, it's really important how we, how we treat them, very different to traditional finance businesses. 
So zip pay is really, I guess, halfway between a debit card where you obviously have to actually have the funds in your account mm-hmm. and a credit card which charges interest rather than your kind of fees. I think that's a, a really interesting way of, of, of looking at it and, and customers are, are paying back effectively with their own money. They see it as a, as, as a variant of the debit card and, in fact, Many customers that sign up for Zip these days, more than 60%, don't have a credit card. So they're choosing these better and fairer ways to pay where they have a a closer connection with versus the traditional bank credit card. So what's the most common item that consumers are using Zip for? Well, you know, what's interesting about Zip is that we offer a, a unique solution in Australia where we're one of the only players to allow you to buy now, pay later across the entire retail category sector. And we always saw ourselves as a disruptor to the credit card. So rather than focusing on any one segment, we really played in a, in a very broad category set. So consumer electronics, obviously a, a, a big category. Bunnings is a, is, is a big customer of ours where we, we all go to Bunnings multiple times a day. Because we offer a, a virtual card that plugs into Apple Pay and Google Pay, a lot of customers might go to the grocery store or pay for fuel. You know, we started life out more in the you know, as I said, disrupting more of the traditional consumer finance world with the televisions, the furniture, the bicycles, the travel. But increasingly now, we are for your for your everyday. So whether it's needs or wants, Zip can be there for you. Mm. And what is the breakdown of how many people pay on time? Well, the, the metric that we disclose publicly is that one in a hundred Zip customers are late right. in in any given month, which also correlates to about our revenues. About one percent of our revenues made up from um, late fees. Yeah. Interestingly, there've been a, a range of studies that have been conducted here in Australia, one by one of the bureaus, which showed that customers, when they look at the pecking order of repayment preferences. They prefer to pay buy now, pay later over credit cards. So we're actually starting to build a much deeper and connected relationship with customers because we're not just in your wallet, in your pocket where you don't, there's no brand connection. We live where our customers are. So we're at checkout. We're on the product page. We're in store windows. We're with them with the marketing. So you actually start to build quite a different relationship together with the app. You know, the app is really the, the centerpiece of our relationship with our customers. And in any given month, we might have 1.2 million customers logging into our app. So, you know, huge engagement and therefore a very different relationship. We can't forget that our first customer was actually the merchant, Japelli Cycles, and then our first customer, Naomi, came through the checkout there in December. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about the merchant. Our proposition to, to the merchant is quite a simple one. It's that we, we believe we can increase sales risk-free and we'll settle funds next day. And we wear all the all the risks, whether that's credit or fraud risk. So that proposition, we're going to charge a little bit higher than some of the other forms of payment tender. And so, you know, a couple of hundred basis points above what you might be paying other forms of payments. And the maths proves time and time again. We see average order values that might be between 50 and 100% higher than some, some of the other payment options. So, Larry, you dispense then and manage microcredit, but you don't consider yourself a bank, do you? But you do have a loan book. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for us, the zip purpose, the freedom to, to own it, talks to, you know, giving customers the freedom to own the experience, own the dress, 
own their financial well-being, but we also own the responsibilities that come with issuing microcredit in real time. So our heritage actually eight years ago was getting a credit license. My co-founder, Peter Gray, has been in consumer finance for uh, 25 years. And so our heritage actually is in regulated consumer finance. We do see ourselves as issuing microcredit in, in real time. And as a result of that, we have a duty of responsibility to make sure that we understand customers, we vet customers, and, and, and make sure the right customers come onto the platform. And equally, those that aren't suitable, we have alternative products for, such as Pocketbook and, and, and other tools that we have in our app. So we don't see right, ourselves... So sorry, you do credit and background checks on potential customers? Absolutely. And, and you know, versus, uh, you know, others, others in the industry, since day one, we have done credit checks, identity checks since inception. We also pull bank transactional data. And, and interestingly, this has been probably our secret weapon, if you like, since we started, is having the ability to look at a bank file, looking at a customer's bank transactional data in real time, allows you to actually understand a lot more about customers, particularly customers that might be new to credit, so they might have a, a thin file or a new file. We can look at the bank account. We can see how their repayments, do they have any payday loans, and therefore make sure that we get the right customers onto the platform, and we've probably had maybe 4 million Australians come through our service using the uh, banking service. So we've always seen ourselves having that duty of responsibility. Even though we sign up customers incredibly quickly at our retail checkout, we don't cut corners. And in fact, the amount of data that we digest to make sure we get it right is larger than not just the other buy now, pay ladders, but also many of the large banks and, and credit card issuers. Right, but you aren't regulated like a bank, are you? So you don't have a banking license. You're not regulated in that sense that the bank is. Yeah, so I think if you look at the licensing obligations, there's really two that you need to think about. So the bank license per se is really around taking deposits, and we never see ourselves as a bank. We will never be a bank. When it comes to credit, however, we do have an Australian credit license. We uh, procured that in the first year of operation, and that's important when you are providing regulated credit, which is our Zip Money product, which is where our heritage is. The Zip Pay product is unregulated. However, our underwriting practices are pretty much identical to Zip Money customers. Why do you reckon it's proving so popular with younger people? It's a good question. Uh, I think that there's probably a few a few factors here. One is community doesn't give youngsters probably the credit they deserve. They know what is a good product and what is a bad product. And I think what we've seen with millennials and post-millennials is they do look at the credit card and it is an antiquated and broken and, and broken product. I think secondly, these products, Buy Now, Pay Later has started out online. And if you look at the demographics, that's where millennials and Gen Zs, they, are, they tend to be early adopters. They're willing to try new things and they shop online. And the third is these products are a better and fairer way to transact. It's very transparent. It also has fantastic controls built into the product to ensure that you don't get stuck with high revolving interest balances. And we are connected to the brands that these customers love. And so once you kind of combine all those factors together, it, it makes for you know, a pretty good marriage. Yeah, Larry, I have to ask you though, because ZipPay is for lower amounts to borrow or to get credit and it's online, it is more attractive to young people, students, people perhaps with part-time or casual work or on low incomes. And then when you say that, you know, a lot of it now is spent on grocery items and everyday items, 
there's a little red flag that goes up to me and I, and I think, does that make them more vulnerable to fees adding up if they don't actually have money in their accounts to pay for the groceries today? Yeah, uh, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that statement because what's happening is these customers are used for all range of products. You know, it is groceries, it's consumer electronics, it's bills, it's, it's dental. But regardless of which customer is signing up to our products, we do what we need to do to make sure the right customers come onto the platform. So we unfortunately reject a lot of applicants who don't meet our bar. Uh, so when we're looking at their ability to afford the repayments, what their credit profile is, as you sort of touched on earlier, we're doing a significant amount to really understand their creditworthiness, their ability yeah. to withstand certain macro and micro factors, which is quite different to many of the other players out there out there in the industry. And I think what the downstream facts really speak for themselves. Our rejection rate, the fact that only 1% of customers are late in any given month, contrast that with the credit card and even the other pay laters that might be one in five or or a one in six. We are doing a lot of work up front. And similarly on the portfolio, if, if a customer falls behind in any one day or month, the account automatically locks. Again, very different to the bank credit card where you can continue to swipe right. in the physical world every day. So these products, you know, this is why we do see the death of the credit card. Okay. Now, why would a customer or a merchant go through you rather than, say, Afterpay, which obviously has been, you know, I mean, you've been a market darling as well. You've grown this company enormously. But, you know, Afterpay is the dominant player at the moment. Why would people go with you? Because we're incredibly charming. <laughs> well, they can't meet you every time they use the yeah, service. No. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I, I joke, but no, for us, I mean, I joke and I also don't joke because for us, it's all about relationships. And, yeah. and in fact, when we were cutting our teeth, you know, the first hundred merchants that we that we brought on, Pete and I personally spoke to them, onboarded them, and so you know, really understanding the the customer putting merchants at the center. We also have a very differentiated proposition versus our peers. So if you look at Australia, one, we're uniquely able to offer installments for low baskets, so it could be a couple of hundred dollars or AirPods or so forth, or for large baskets such as computers over at Officeworks and, and mobile phones. So our ability to offer installments for any dollar amount is quite the differentiator. And that's important because if you buy a television, for example, pay it back over two months is the equivalent of a mortgage repayment. So having the appropriate payback cycle is really important. So number one is we offer installments for any dollar size. Two is we've also built up a very different customer population. So because of the merchants that we started with, the fact that we went much broader, and because of the construct, this idea that we empower our end users, we tended to always skew a little bit older. So it's more the older millennial, someone who wants to be more in control of their everyday finances. And so I think we've also built up quite a large and complementary customer base, which is which is appealing to uh, merchants. And, and I think thirdly, we also have a very engaged customer. Because we do have the Apple Pay and Google Pay solution that can be used everywhere, some of our customers are transacting four times plus a month. And an engaged customer is very interesting to merchants who are trying to drive their overall business. And so when you, when you combine all of those things, that's quite a differentiated proposition. Underlying all of that, we are technologists at heart. So when we go and talk to merchants, we want to talk to them about some of their problems and how we can leverage our technology. You know, I'm, I'm an ex-business analyst by background. How can we actually do more? Let's not rest on our laurels. And, and what other products and features can we bring to bear? And, and, we, and we can talk about some of those that we've brought out. 
Also, that customer-centric, technology-led profile that also changes the nature of the relationship. Yeah, look, it's such an interesting area. And of course, it's exploded exponentially in this country. And mm-hmm. you guys have taken it to the world as well as Afterpay. But just really briefly, do you have to pay Apple, Google, Visa? Do they all get a little snip along the way? <laughs> How many hands are in the cookie jar? Well, <laughs> uh, some, some of the hands in the cookie jar and others, others don't. You know, um, some of those names that you mentioned actually have an open source architecture where they don't charge fees and, you know, Visa and others do. So we have a range of costs that, that go into our gross profit margin when we look at our revenue profile and a cost of goods sold. Processing costs are definitely a, a cost of doing business. Now, you recently entered the, what I imagine is a massive US market, acquiring QuadPay. How's that going? And was that the only way to do it, to acquire someone? Yeah, so America is a very, very exciting market, of course. Uh, you know, retail anywhere from five to six trillion dollars. So it's an you know, incredibly large market with well north of, of 330 million customers in the country. A few years ago, when we were sitting around the board table and we were looking at the dynamics that were happening in Australia, particularly this emergence of the buy now, pay later as the new interest free solution, we did look at the, at, at the American market. And, and for us, we were very excited by it. But the challenge for us was really a question of how. At the time, we were incredibly busy over here in Australia, rebuilding a lot of our technology infrastructure, integrating with a number of large merchants such as Amazon, for example. So it would have been a massive distraction for the core business in Australia, which which we had to make a success. If we didn't make Australia a success, we would have had no opportunity to realise our dreams. And so the question really around the board table was the how. How do we go global? We, we ended up finding a platform it was actually started in, in New Zealand, but it, it was a portable installment technology platform that was in New Zealand, US, UK, and South Africa. And it's that platform that really led us to QuadPay. Great founders. You know, interestingly, both Adam and Brad, I've personally known for, uh, well, yeah, I'm getting old now, but 20 plus years in different forms. And so we looked for a platform that could help us scale, lightweight, agile, and so that was that trust to the to the platform. And then the founders themselves, good trust, which was really important. And the deal, interestingly, was about to be consummated right before COVID. And then of course COVID hit just over twelve months ago and we had to put it on ice. And then very fortunate as the numbers started to come through and we saw that consumption was looking good and, and credit was looking good. We then acquired them. And great founders, innovators, hustlers very a shared common goal and, and vision so it was it was really was a, a match made for the two of us and and without that trusted network i thought, think it would have been incredibly difficult we're now actually using the quad pay stack to go global so in those you know in canada europe middle east uk south africa asia we're all building it on on the quad pay stack wow and are those founders are they aussies they are indeed Aussies. <laughs> Another set of Unbelievable. buy now, pay later founders all the way from, from Australia, uh, which is which is quite remarkable. These are the founders of QuadPay, who you've known for 20 years, a couple of them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They, um, I, I worked with one of them over at Macquarie and, and the other, when I, when I was starting out, dip in a, a shared office. He was actually, Brad was in the office next door on another payment startup called BuyReply. And then I sort of lost track of them for a few years. Next thing I see... They've launched a buy now, pay later in Australia, and the rest is history. Fantastic.
I just want to step back to the original, I guess, humble idea. Where did Zipco, which began as Zip Money, you came up with the idea, right? How did that happen? Casting the mind all the way back, my background was tech at university, worked at Pacific Brands for a few years as a business analyst. And then I moved into the world of investment banking. So worked at Macquarie and then Deutsche Bank. So, you know, my background, when you kind of look back, is quite interesting because I had the technology and and then the financial services experience. I left Deutsche Bank in 2012, and it was at that stage where I started thinking about different different business models. Again, for me, I'm very much coming from outside the world of consumer credit and fintech. And interestingly, I was consulting to a good friend of mine, Greg, who's the founder of Prosper, and spent a lot of time consulting with him. It was just him in the office learning about this new world of leveraging technology to disrupt the world of credit, both for, for small business. And that's when I actually started thinking, well, wow, some of this technology could really serve well for the Aussie consumer. When you kind of look around what the banks are offering, what the old Synchrony and GE were offering, and that's where I got really excited by it. But very much, as you can see, came from very much outside the industry and just started doing a huge amount of research, just trying to make myself an expert. How did you meet your co-founder, Peter Gray? There's a great story attached to that, isn't there? There is a good story. Good old Pete, who I didn't know from a, a bar of soap. As I was formulating the business idea and pitching it to, to investors using probably a, an old, boring investment banking style presentation, they kept saying to me, look, it's a great idea, Larry, but you have absolutely no idea about, about consumer credit. Uh, we really, really think you need to get some uh, expertise. Now, of course, I didn't know anyone in the industry, so I did what you do and called up a, a recruiter online and, and asked if, if they had anyone to meet. And so you could say Pete and I met online. We took our meeting, our first meeting. At we dated the, online, yeah. We dated online at the first date, uh, met uh, in, in the city, and, and the Commodore actually, the Commodore in North Sydney became the middle ground. Pete was on the north, I was on the, the east. The Commodore pub. At Commod- North Sydney. That's it, the Commodore Hotel. The Commodore Hotel. Right, so wait a minute, let me get this straight. You advertised for someone to trust in business to become a partner. That's most unusual, isn't it? Well, I think I probably made up I made up a business and said that, you know, I'm a successful business owner and I'm looking for a, <laughs> a head of credit. And they the recruiter believed me and introduced me to Mr. Peter Gray, who you know, if, if that didn't happen, we definitely wouldn't be here having this conversation. Yeah, so he was the credit expert. You had the computing, the tech side, the business analyst side. So what you, you met in the pub and tossed around these ideas to jump into a global market that roughly includes Visa, MasterCard, two of the biggest, most profitable companies in the world, and maybe even the likes of PayPal, these point of sale sort of payment systems. Why did you think you could beat them? Or was it more that you could take a chunk of market share and profit from the share that those big guys had? We were each coming at this from obviously a very different background. You know, Pete, um, you know, Pete and I live in very different communities, different worlds. But you know, Pete had been in the industry for about 20 years, so he saw what was broken with it all. And obviously, there's a deep passion around you know leveraging technology to deliver better outcomes for customers. And I was, you know, technology and customer experience for me has always been at the heart of what drives me. And so I think we just ended up finding a, a common goal. And look, definitely in those early years when I told mum about this, she said, it's impossible. You're going to need a lot of money. 
you're going to need a lot, a lot of capital. And, uh, you know, we, we've never built businesses before. This was really going to be a, a first, but I think it was, it was probably a combination of the passion to really disrupt the world of the traditional payment dinosaurs, but it was also about having the opportunity to build a company and a culture that we could be proud of, you know, because we had similar values. We, you know, we love building relationships and creating a playground for people to, to bring their best. So I definitely think it was a double, it was a two-sided coin, if you like, that really propelled us. Did it ever occur to you that, say, if and when PayPal or even ComBank here in Australia enter the BNPL sector, they will be the 100-pound gorilla who could possibly crush you? Look, I think if I recall our first investor presentation, I'm pretty sure that we would have had on that slide because you're trying to educate investors about what is this world that you're trying to create. We had on there definitely a logo of Klarna. We said, look, there's this company in Sweden that's doing something similar. And we said that PayPal had some weird product in America when we done the research called PayPal Credit that, again, was similar, but we, we wanted to do things very, very differently. And so we probably used their logos to help us raise our first round. So we should thank them, I would say, for, for creating such such good names for themselves. And, and that really propelled us. Now, I would say in the early years, people gave us a lot of questions around what about PayPal? You know, PayPal obviously had a very large wallet population here. And yeah, we, we were candidly quite surprised that it's taken them eight years. You know, this would have been sitting on a management presentation internally at PayPal for eight years plus. It's taken them eight years to actually innovate, copy, and, and then launch. I think it just shows you that same as CBA. I mean, it's taken CBA eight years to create a copy of the Afterpay product. So I think it just shows you that the big gorillas, they can't move quickly. Uh, and so as long mm. as if you're agile, you're nimble, we are zip. We, we have to move fast. It's in the brand name. As long as we keep doing that, I think we've, we can we can take on these, these big gorillas. Was Zipco always a big vision for you at the beginning, given that you had come out of other jobs? Look, I think, I think you know, candidly, if we had built a, you know, a $20 million business, we, you know, Pete and I would have been incredibly proud at having been able to design something from a blank canvas, raise capital, build a team and execute. Often you can come up with the right product market fit, but the timing is very much outside of your control. If we had tried to do this 10 years prior in 10 years' time, we would have tried our best. We would have given a red-hot crack, but we probably wouldn't be where we are today. So I think we always have to be mindful of, of, of those elements. And so as we kept getting bigger, our eyes got bigger as well and said, well, why don't we just continue building, going bigger, more aggressive targets, go global? You know, we always have a duty of responsibility. And so our view now is the sky's the limit. And, you know, that's, that's what we permeate through, through the culture here. Where did the name come from? Yes, uh, the name, the name Zip, which was, uh, when Pete and I were talking about this back in the day, we wanted something that involved movement. You know, we, we like companies mm. that built brands around verbs. Uh, that, that was, that was really important. We like three letter names because it's easy to remember. It's simple. It's concise. And we were going to be leveraging technology to deliver faster and better outcomes for customers. And so I think, you know, we, we tossed a few, a few names around, checked online to see that, that it was available and off we went. How did you fund it at the start? Was it your savings only? Did you sort of beg and borrow money from friends or family? The formative years. It was a combination of things. So I think, you know, first of all, we, Pete and I, as, as we put together this investor presentation, 
It would have looked like a, a boring old Deutsche Bank investor press, probably copied some of the uh, slides. You were looking for outside investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I had probably um, – at the time, I actually didn't have much much savings, probably 20 grand or so, Pete, as well. So we knew we were going to need a bit of money to hire developers, engineers, and really get – pay for you know credit license applications, pay for the credit bureau connection. So we were going to need a bunch of money. and. We said we needed $170,000. We thought that was an appropriate amount to get going. These days, one investor can write $170,000, but when, when, when you haven't built a business before, you've got no track record, it's incredibly hard to get $170,000. And we pitched probably about 60 investors and ended up with five who tend to go in the bucket of the three Fs, fools, family, or friends. Some of the above, all of the above, we're not going to judge. Okay, so you you essentially bootstrapped it yourselves or with a bit of money from family and friends. Yeah, so we raised 170 grand and I wasn't taking a salary. Pete was on half a salary and then the subsequent years he was working for free. So we we were absolutely running off the, the smell of an oily rag and, you know, that money lasted us all the way until we listed on the stock exchange. Which doesn't include the debt capital, mind you, as well, but that was the uh, equity capital. Right, so that lasted you, what, two years? 2013 to, to 2015. But at the same time, yeah. you've, got, you've got to remember, when Naomi checked out at Chappelle Cycle, on the Monday, all of a sudden, we had to settle $5,000 to Chappelle Cycle. So what was important was also to build the debt book. So not only do we have difficulty in getting equity capital, but our cost of goods is actually capital, cash. And so yeah. it was important to, to build that. And that, that was also incredibly challenging. What was your first year like? I mean, was it a struggle? The If you look at the media about Zipco or well, the journey, it seems to have been seamless and that it was a dream run, that it just grew and grew. Has it all been plain sailing in reality? I think we all know it's never it's never the case. It's the duck on the water paddling and under the water, it's absolute chaos. So we had, we had huge amounts of challenges. I think, you know, firstly, finding a technical co-founder because we actually wanted to get a, a CTO we really struggled to find to find a CTO. We ended up hiring a great engineer out of out of CBA, but we needed. I remember we were outsourcing a lot of front end work on ODES to Indian developers, who turned out to be outsourcing it to other developers who built ridiculous code. And we ended up rebuilding and reworking things for a couple of years there. The other big challenge for us was, as we touched on. Transactions would, would go through and then in the morning on Monday, we would be desperate for cash. Our investors didn't always want to give us the debt capital for the loan book. So we again would call our friends. We had another chap join us within the year, you know, another, another founding team member, Adam. Me and him used to call up anyone that we could get our hands on. And over the subsequent years, we, we, we ended up acquiring about 60 high net worth investors and friends that invested anywhere from 5,000 to 50,000 help fund our loan book. So we'd literally go around in a proverbial pickup truck trying to get the, the debt money. So that was an absolute struggle. At the same time, you've got to sign up merchants. You've got to build the product. We need to answer customer calls. Pete was working seven days a week from basically 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. as customer applications came through. So you can just, yeah, and that happened for, for, for quite a few years. So uh, it was it was incredibly intense. And we also just both had a child. So we had a one-year-old. So we were managing the one-year-old. We were doing the business, managing for survival and trying to find capital. So it was uh, complete chaos. I don't know how we got through, but, but we did. 
<laughs> Extraordinary because, I mean, as you're saying, you know, you think about you promised merchants, they get their payment straight away and suddenly you might have a, a customer who's not going to pay you for two months. So, you know, that gap in funding that, that obviously tricky. So were bank, did you approach banks for some finance? Did you not want to have a bar of them? Yeah, you touched on it, you know, our, our values and principles we, we installed in day one, which was if a transaction comes through, we're going to pay the merchant next day. Yeah. So that meant that we always had to have the money. We were always scouting for money. Now, we spoke to a lot of people. We couldn't get meetings with the banks because who do you, who do you call? We didn't even have, uh, we had a relationship with a, with a call center person at Westpac. So it was, there was no way we could even get an audience with the, with the big banks. High net worths, Took, took calls, but their, their big question was, how do we know the money's going to come back? Right? They looked at me and, well, I, I, I had done this before. I said, you got to look at Pete. You got to trust Pete. That's, that's the guy you got to look at. And if you can trust him, and look, we, we spoke to quite a few VCs as well at the time. Back then, the, the VC community was very small. They didn't club together. They couldn't price risk appropriately. And then some of the, the non-bank lenders, we definitely spoke to them. And they offered obscene terms, you know, where they wanted to take 50% of the company and charge us 20% interest. We actually got close to signing a few of those deals and, you know, obviously a blessing in disguise that we didn't. But, yeah, it was very challenging to build equity and then you add debt on top of that equation and that, that breaks for a lot of investors. In part two of our chat next week, Larry Diamond reveals how travel as a young man living on a kibbutz in Israel and harsh lessons learned while working at Macquarie Bank during the global financial crisis, the GFC, shaped his thinking that he later brought to Zipco. That's next week. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.